listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Screen actor Ronald Reagan, the former Republican governor of California, defeated Democrat incumbent Jimmy Carter in 1980 by nearly 8.5 million votes. More and more people did not vote at all. The proportion of people eligible to vote who actually voted in elections fell from nearly 70% in 1964 to less than 60% in 1980. The new regime was not friendly to unions. The Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization had complained for years that staffing and equipment had not kept pace with expanding traffic. Stress forced many controllers into early retirement. By mid-1980, the Federal Aviation Administration had set up a management strike contingency force. When 15,000 controllers walked out August 3, 1981, Reagan put the plan into action. Four hours into the strike, he declared a national t- on national television that controllers who did not return within 48 hours have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. Most were. The AFL-CIO had already announced a Solidarity Day march and rally in Washington and the affiliated unions turned out almost half a million members and supporters on September 19th. They cheered Polish independent trade unionists and PATCO strikers alike. The Federation pressed Democrats to oppose Republican initiatives. As for PATCO, when some unions urged nationwide actions, President Lane Kirkland declared, I personally do not think that the trade union movement should undertake anything that would represent punishing, injuring, or inconvenience to the public at large for the sins or transgressions of the Reagan administration. Subsequent Solidarity Days became congressional lobbying blitzes. While Reagan's transgressions injured more and more members of the public at large, The Reagan team brought businessmen and their friends to Washington, and they brought business habits. Some simply looted the public treasury. The chair of the Postal Board of Governors steered consulting contracts to his friends. The vice chair, a Reagan campaign official, took bribes from contractors after financiers and bankers stole or gambled away 90 to 130 billion from federally insured and deregulated savings and loan associations. 
the government paid out upwards of 400 billion, much of it in interest, as the resolution of the debacle stretched into a second round of ransacking undervalued assets. The bulk of Reagan's 8 billion worth of tax cuts went to taxpayers with annual incomes above 50,000. Almost half of all taxpayers saw the their overall tax bills rise, mainly through increased payroll taxes, and another 30% saw little or no change. Corporations did well. In 1980, they paid less than 18%. Congress scrambled to pass new tax credits and allowances for needy firms and industries. Businessmen wanted less government interference. Industries were deregulated. Oil and gas airlines banking, savings and loans, and other financial services, broadcasting, cable communications, and transportation. For safety, environmental, and consumer protection regulation, the White House cut agencies' budgets and installed administrators committed to reducing regulatory activity. When the Civil Rights Commission complained about cuts in federal civil rights enforcement, Staffing in 1983, the White House fired three commissioners. Some laws were just ignored. Federal contractors were required to pay prevailing wages, usually union scale. But the military and other departments stopped enforcing the rule, and by the mid-1980s, non-union contractors got almost all the work. The administration left open two seats in the National Labor Relations Board until 1983 letting the case backlog grow. In 1984, the board ruled that employers need not negotiate with unions over plant closures. Otis Elevators could send union work to non-union contractors and could fire union members for verbal conduct. The new NLRB upheld union charges in 55% of the cases, down from 85% a decade earlier and some unions waited five years for a final decision. For most people, economic decline began with a sharp rise in oil prices after the 1973 Arab-Israeli War, followed by stagflation, rising inflation, and unemployment. From an annual average of less than 3% from 1945 to 1967, inflation rose to about 5% in 1973, over 8.9% in 1975, and reached double digits by 1980. Unemployment remained around 5% through 1973, then rose to 8% in 1975, and reached 9% by 1982. Real wages began to fall in 1973 and plunged after 1975. From 1972 to 1980, 82 average weekly earnings before taxes for non-agricultural workers fell from $196.41 to $167.87 in constant value dollars, a 12% decline. Business responded to the crisis in several ways. Companies invested in other companies buying shares in rivals and diversifying against losses in a single industry, or just shopping for profits. 
Corporations spent $50 billion buying into or taking over other firms in 1980, more than double that the next year, and double it again to over $250 billion in 1986. The big corporations became bigger, with more operations dispersed more widely with heavier debt and interest payments. By the mid-1970s, more than half of the sell stock purchases were made by bank trust departments. Corporate management revised the definition of profitability. Interest paid on loans rose from 30% of corporate after-tax profits in 1979 to nearly 140% in 1986, and was still over 100% in 1990. Closing even a Money-making facility could improve a corporate bottom line. Uniroyal shut down its profitable Indianapolis fire plant in 1978 to put the cash into making even more profitable chemical products. In 1990, GE announced the closure of its most profitable small appliance division, the Ontario California Metal Iron Plant. A thousand black and Latino women union members lost their jobs. Corporations also invested more abroad. GE's new metal irons were made in Mexico and Brazil. Corporate profits from foreign investment tripled between 1965 and 1980, becoming almost a sixth of total profits. By 1970, almost half of all U.S. imports and nearly three-fourths of exports were exchanges between subsidiaries of transnational corporations. Some foreign direct investment improved access to markets or natural resources, but much of it financed the continuing quest for cheap labor. Right-to-work states were attractive, but labor was even cheaper in the developing world. Puerto Rico began its Operation Bootstraps economic development program in the 1940s featuring tax holidays and low-wage labor. It proved to be a bonanza for U.S. investors, returning over $75 million in profits and dividends in the 1960s and over $800 million in 1970. From the 1960s, multinational corporations moved labor-intensive operations to new facilities in Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. In the 1960s, the Mexican government opened its first industrial park for processing exports in Ciudad Juarez, across the border from El Paso, Texas. The same year, RCA opened a television assembly plant in right-to-work Memphis, Tennessee. Two years later, RCA built a new facility in the Ciudad Juarez Macalador Zone. By 1971, RCA Memphis had closed and RCA Mexico had expanded. World Bank and International Monetary Fund policies encouraged governments in developing countries to take the same path, improving utilities, transportation, and communication infrastructure, and relaxing restrictions on foreign owner and profit transfers. U.S.-backed Regimes helped enforce labor discipline. Between 1970 and 1980, U.S.-owned assets abroad multiplied five times. 
By 1980, more than 3.3 billion returned as profits and dividends to non-resident investors from Puerto Rico alone. Nearly 70% of the island's manufacturers going mostly to the U.S. Business could relocate as well as manufacturing and assembly. In 1981, Blue Shield broke a 15-week strike by Medicare claims processors by transferring 448 jobs out of San Francisco. Offshore data entry had started in Ireland and Barbados by 1982. By 1988, Filipino, Indian, and Scottish contractors also processed credit card slips, supermarket coupons, insurance, and hospital records, and book manuscripts for U.S. corporations. In 1979, Federal Reserve Chairman Paul Volcker declared, the standard of living of the average American worker has to decline. Between 1978 and 1982, 6.8 million jobs were lost to plant closures. By 1981, a third of all auto workers and half of all steel workers were unemployed. By 1982, about 2 million Americans were homeless. Far from boardrooms and stock exchanges, economic change engulfed entire countries. The coordinated regional contracts ran out the last day of June 1983. The union offered to freeze wages except for a cost of living adjustment and four copper companies accepted. Phelps Dodge Copper Corporation demanded cuts and no cola and Phelps Dodge miners walked out a minute after midnight on July 1st. Phelps Dodge got an injunction against union pickets and organized convoys under police protection to bring office employees and supervisors to work the mines. Miners' wives and supporters took over picket duty. Six weeks into the strike, the company began hiring replacements. When the pickets massed to block convoys, National Guardsmen and state police dispersed them with tear gas. The pickets returned again and again. One state trooper declared, If we could just get rid of these rods, we'd have it made. The women organized an auxiliary, set up a food bank and clothing exchange. Body evictions organized relief after a flash flood and dispatched members to strike support rallies in New York, Boston, and California. After the auxiliary held a single de Mayo fiesta, 100 women marched off to picket the, the shift change at the Murano mine, followed by hundreds of residents and supporters. Again, the police dispersed the crowd with gas when pickets formed up to march after a fiesta on the strike's first anniversary. A phalanx of 200 state troopers charged them. The unions had offered in June to accept the company's terms if strikers could return by seniority, but copper prices were falling. Phelps Dodges shut down its Aju mine, laying off 500 replacements and reduced operations at its new Cornelia Moore, laying off another 100. The auxiliary staged a New Year's Eve goodbye scabs rally, but the strike was over. In 1987, 
the NLRB upheld an October 1984 decertification vote. Strikers, supporters, and unions won several civil rights cases. Trial evidence detailed police collaboration with the company, getting lists of people to be arrested and filing false reports. Even strong unions were organized industries with industry-wide standards for wages, hours, and working conditions could not resist demands for concessions. As UAW Rep. Jack Horn told Chrysler's local 869 members, those of you who don't want to take a wage cut, go out and find another job. It was no idle threat. Ford casting plant workers in Sheffield, Alabama refused to accept a 50% cut in wages and benefits and the plant closed in 1981. General Motors and Ford demanded concessions to match Chrysler's. The UAW agreed and in 1982 the membership ratified contract modifications. Even before the 1983 general economic recovery when Businessweek magazine surveyed corporate executives in 1982, 57% reported that they preferred concessions on work rules to wage cuts, and 19% agreed with the statement, although we don't need concessions, we are taking advantage of the bargaining climate to ask for them. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.